This is Michael Isley in Context. Welcome to the podcast today. And we're very fortunate to have Steve Miller, who resides in Eugene, Oregon. As I understand, Eugene's kind of the bowl for humidity. Is, is that right? <laughs> yes, we get quite a bit of rain here. How often do you wash your car? <laughs> You'd be surprised. We have to wash them quite frequently because the rain uh, splatters the dirt on the highway, then the dirt on the highway gets all over the car. There you go. Steve is quite a credentialed professor. He went to the Master's Seminary. He's also done work with Liberty University, 40-plus years of various roles, including editing, acquisitions for Christian publishing. And his niche is Bible prophecy. And, and just for our friends who've listened to our podcast, we've had Ron Rhodes and Erwin Lutzer on a number of times, longtime friends of mine. And when your publicist reached out, I said, ah, another book on prophecy. And then I went over and went, wait, Erwin Lutzer and Ron Rhodes, we got to have Steve Miller on the podcast. So thanks again for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about In Context and the listeners who follow you is that these are people who have a strong desire to grow in their discernment for how they should approach Christian living today. And that's so sorely needed. You know, we, we talk about this, Stephen, with so many of our guests about the lack of not even biblical literacy, but the lack of churches that simply don't open a Bible. They don't teach the Bible. They've been taken over by cultural trends. And part of me understands it, but it's grieving and saddening. But anyway, that's not what you and I are here to talk about. We're here to talk about prophecy. Let me begin with a question, because I've done this for about 40 years now, Steve, and I find the continuum of people that, you know, everything is prophetically important and profound, and, you know, the temple stone's going to be laid, and, you know, earthquakes and famines and mudslides to those who are kind of like, meh, you know, yeah. So uh, John Walbert was very careful in talking about prophecy, but he also aligned things to like Gog and Magog and Russia and so forth. And so when, when Ron and Erwin Luther endorsed your book, I thought, okay, here's a gentleman who understands you can't have these sort of either overdramatic everything as the sky is falling, nor ignore prophecy. So give our friends a little bit of a guardrail. How do you think prophetically? How do you interpret prophetic literature? Give us Steve Miller's guidelines on how we read prophecy. Well, before I answer that question, I'd like to back up a little bit to something that you said a little earlier, which is very perceptive. Sure. And that is, you're right, the drop in biblical literacy, the drop in church attendance, the things that are affecting Christians today. I think a big part of that is the fact that Christians have become so self-oriented and churches have become so focused on pleasing people rather than pleasing God. When we become self-focused, we take our focus off of God, and that has a detrimental effect on our heart's desire to pursue the Scriptures and to do church and to be doing all the things that God has called us to do. So yeah, that's a very perceptive comment on your part. As far as prophecy goes, you mentioned John Walvoord, and he's one of the great stalwarts of Bible prophecy, one of the teachers who encouraged us to do two things. One is to look at the scriptures and interpret them literally, which means to let prophecy speak for itself, let the scriptures speak for themselves. And when we allow the scriptures to speak for themselves, and we let that be our guardrail, what happens is it helps us to not go off into 
different tangents that can't be supported by Scripture. For example, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a lot of people are tempted to tie that into a Bible prophecy. Well, if you look at Scripture, you can't actually find any place where there's a comment on Russia invading Ukraine. Now, there may be some prophetic significance in terms of the birth pangs where Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars increasing as we approach the end times. You can look at it that way. But there's no actual prophecy about Russia attacking Ukraine itself. So if we let Scripture speak for itself, that's one very big help right there. Another is that if we try to avoid turning every headline into something of prophetic significance, that helps too. There's a great temptation to look at what's going on today and attach it to Bible prophecy in some way or other. But we have to limit ourselves to what does Scripture actually say and let that inform us, not let the news and what's going on around us inform us. You know, it, I had a perhaps the last three Sundays, different people in our church, Stonebridge Bible Church, come up and ask me specifically. Uh, one said, would you please teach the book of Revelation? You know, behind that question was, you know, is this the end of the world? Is this Are these things falling into place? Is the Ukraine-Russia conflict the next step. And certainly, I mean, you mentioned this in your materials that, and I say this all the time, Steve, had we lived in World War II period leading up to World War II, and we were Bible-believing, I'll say evangelical, fundamental people, we would have thought Hitler was the Antichrist. We would have thought the nations were rallying against Christ. We would have thought all sorts of things. I believe that. I haven't studied pre-World War II preachers. That said, it's not as bad today, but as you point out in your book, technology, world globalization, the economy, it's a very different landscape from conventional to informational war. So anyway, I'm prattling a bit, but I think it's important for our folks to remember nothing's new. God's still sovereign, but yet, let's go back to the guardrails when you read the scripture. Obviously, you're going to talk about Ukraine. You're going to talk about inflation, globalization, the power of these tech companies. So give us, again, give us Steve's primer on how these things play. Not that we build theology on headlines, but do headlines illustrate theology? Yes. And I think there's two ways of looking at that. When Jesus taught the disciples about the end times— in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. He did something interesting. Anytime the Lord wanted us to pay attention to something he said, he would repeat it. And in the Olivet Discourse, when he taught about the end times, when he explained to the disciples, they asked him the question, what will be the signs of your coming? And Jesus, in his response, said, you cannot know the day or the hour, but keep watch. Be alert, though you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch. Three times he said, keep watch, be alert, keep watch. Uh, The Greek terminology behind that is a sense of continual anticipation, a sense of perpetual anticipation of constantly being ready, constantly watching out. But in the very same time he said, keep watch, he also said, you will not know the day or the hour. That's not for you to know. And so there's a healthy tension there. There's a sense in which we need to say, okay, we don't know the day or the hour. So we can't be overly speculative. We have to be careful about that. But the Lord did say, keep watch. And that tells us something. That's actually a command. He repeated it three times. And so that tells us, okay, I need to be watching at least for the season. I need to at least be sensitive to what are the possible signs. 
And we, as students of Scripture, as we read Scripture and we understand what God has revealed to us so far, and we look at what's happening in the world today, as long as we're careful to make sure that Scripture is always our guideline for how we understand what's going on in the world, we will be kept safe. A second way of looking at it is a wedding ceremony. Weddings don't just spontaneously pop out of nowhere. Before a wedding happens, there's a lot of planning that takes place. The bride and groom get together. They talk about what they want to do for the wedding, who they want to invite, send out the invitations. There are showers. There are parties. There's a rehearsal. All of that takes place before the wedding. All of those events, all of those things that take place before the wedding are what we would call foreshadows. They are all things that, as we participate in them, they remind us that there's a wedding coming up. This is coming up in the future. And so as we look at what's going on around us in the world, these things are reminding us history is on track. And as you say, God is in control. God is orchestrating this. He told us that this would happen. He said that these things would happen. Jesus himself said that as we approach the end times, it would become like the days of Noah. So we can't expect things to get worse. But at the same time that the world is falling apart and things are getting worse, as you say, what's actually happening is things are coming into place. God is in control. All of this is happening under his sovereign uh, rule. I'll refrain from naming principles, but uh, some of my very Reformed friends will discount Matthew 24 the way you and I might read it. I'm sure you've encountered some of this. Can you uh, give us, not not necessarily a point-counterpoint, but they would say this has nothing to do with end times, has nothing to do with the rapture. And again, I, I'm not sure how they get to that, but one of their most, I just say one of their strongest advocates dismisses Matthew 24 as an end times or rapture passage. How do you respond to that? One key element of a response, at least for me, is that we look back at all the prophecies of Christ's first coming, and every single one of them was fulfilled literally. The Reformed camp, what they basically say is, you know, things haven't happened quite the way we expected. For example, Jesus said that when he returned, he was coming soon, I will come quickly. Well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives and went up into heaven. And so the human tendency is, okay, I've got a problem here. Jesus said, I am coming soon, I am coming quickly. But it's been 2,000 years. I need to figure out right. how to resolve that. People are going to ask me, if he said this and it hasn't come back yet, something is wrong. So what tends to happen is we start putting our interpretive hats on of our own and we say, well, okay, if he didn't come quickly, maybe we should interpret prophecy this way, or maybe we should interpret prophecy that way. And so we start bringing human perspectives into divine revelation, and that affects how we view Bible prophecy. Going back, though, to what every single prophecy about Christ's first coming being fulfilled literally, it only makes sense that if that were true, then every single prophecy about Christ's second coming is also going to be fulfilled literally. And so, for example, those who say that Revelation is past, they might point to Rome's conquest of Jerusalem and Israel in AD 70 and say, that was the tribulation. That brought an end to the Jewish people. God brought his punishment. That was the outpouring of God's wrath. But the difficulty of that is that was the Roman army who came against Israel. This wasn't a 
multiple nations worldwide event, which in the book of Revelation, when we look at Jerusalem being attacked and Israel being attacked, there it describes many nations all over the world coming in against Jerusalem. So certain things aren't lining up. You have to look at what does Scripture actually say is going to happen in the end times. I'll give you another example, and that is in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist will enter into the temple on the Temple Mount. Well, for the Antichrist to enter into the temple on the Temple Mount means that there has to be a temple there in the first place, and there isn't one there now. Another prophecy is Ezekiel 38, where it talks about nations from the north are going to be coming down to invade Israel. Well, the very nations that are named in Ezekiel 38 to come invade Israel have never worked together before militarily to invade Israel. So there are certain prophecies that just don't, it's clear that they haven't been fulfilled if we try to attempt to place a past fulfillment on all of these. But if we put a future fulfillment on all of them, suddenly things start making sense. But this goes back to, okay, well, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am coming soon, I am coming quickly? Two things on that. One is, with God, a thousand years is like a day. That's one thing. Another is, when he said, I am coming quickly, it's going to be an instantaneous coming. So it didn't necessarily mean that, you know, 2,000 years, he didn't come quickly. No, when I come quickly, it's going to be like that. It's going to be sudden. I have a very bad theological joke that no one laughs at, and I say, I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, just not in my lifetime. (laughs) Because I hold, you you began in our conversation about, you know, the sort of tension between these two statements, and it's hard to maintain, Steve, an imminent theology, you know, that he could come today. And has that contributed maybe uh, rightly or wrongly to the fact that we've sort of got this malaise about end times teaching? I think that could be true. It's interesting. We live in fallen bodies. We're imperfect. We still struggle with fleshly desires. We still long for some of the things of this world and some of our plans, some of the things that we want to do in the future tend to fall in line with, you know, I'd like to achieve this goal. I would like to do that. Uh, I remember when uh, I was a teenager, I thought, boy, if the rapture happens before I go to college, I won't have a chance to get a career. I won't have a chance to get married. I won't have a chance to get children. You know, these are very practical, pragmatic thoughts that people have. I believe that God created us as future-looking people. We're always curious about the future. And the very fact that we have an innate sense, an innate desire to understand the future, we look forward to it, we'd like to see some fulfillment to that. We'd like to see some closure to that. But we have to realize God's in control. He has the right to interrupt our plans. We're not. (laughs) The title of your book foreshadows 12 mega clues that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. So I first read that and I went, that's clickbait. (laughs) And then I thought, okay, he's right, because as history unfolds, we're getting closer to the end times. (laughs) So anyway, you can correct me. Give us a sense of these mega clues and why you can make the statement, his return is nearer than ever. Well, there's a common saying. It's a cliche, I admit. People, you may hear them say, Each day that passes by, we're one day nearer. And that's true. And one of the things that we all need to be careful about as Christians is not to over-sensationalize what's going on around us today. 
we have to exercise great caution about that because actually Christianity has gotten a black eye from people who have attempted to go too far and set dates or make estimates or make too much out of something. I remember back when the Iraq war started back in 1990, a lot of people, a lot of Christians were thinking, this is it. This is a war in the Middle East. The Bible says that war is going to take place in the Middle East. Israel's right next door to Iraq. This may be it. The rapture may be coming. And, well, that never panned out. That was 30 years ago. So, yeah, we do need to be careful about being sensationalist. We need to be careful that we don't read too much into what's going on. But two big differences here that I think are very compelling is, one, is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. One of the major prophecies that run all through the scriptures is that God promised his people he would bring them back into their land. Yes, they would be scattered. God would punish them. He warned them, if you do not obey me, I will scatter you to the four corners of the world. And that happened, and they did get scattered. And even the Hebrew language itself died out. But God promised, unconditionally, I will bring you back into your land. There is a day coming when I will bring you back, and you will prosper. And that's made very clear in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36 and 37. It's made clear in Jeremiah chapter 30. Even in Leviticus 26.44, God said, Even when they disobey me, I will not spurn them. And in Romans 11.26, Paul said, The calling of God is irrevocable. And that comes at the end of Romans 9.10 and 11. Romans 9.10 and 11 is all about the Jewish people. Did God reject them? And Paul concludes that whole discussion by saying, God's calling is irrevocable. He is going to keep his promise. The people will come back. And sure enough, in 1948, that's exactly what happened. They've come back and they've prospered. What used to be a desert wasteland is now bustling with cities and farms and all that type of thing. Now, what's so important about that, what's so significant about that, is in order for end times prophecies to be fulfilled, there has to be an Israel in place. There has to be a nation of Israel in place. There has to be a Jerusalem in place. There has to be a Temple Mount in place. And we're seeing all of this come together. We're seeing over the last 30 years, Uh, There are people in uh, Israel, people in Jerusalem, who are very passionate about rebuilding the temple. And they've created all the implements. They created their menorah, their training priests. They're getting all ready to eventually in the hopes of someday having that temple back. That's very prophetically significant because prophecy does say there there will be a temple on the Temple Mount again someday. And then the Ezekiel 38 prophecies that talk about the future invasion of Israel. When we look at the nations that are named in the beginning of Ezekiel 38, Russia, Turkey, and Iran all feature very prominently in that passage. And we look at what's happening in Russia, Iran, and uh, Turkey today, and we see them coming together in ways that we've never seen before. The prophecies that the reading of Ezekiel 38 up till now have been very confusing for a lot of people because they say, these nations don't work with each other. There's no coalition, so how does this make sense? And when you look at the map, these nations are scattered. They're in the Middle East, they're in uh, Asia Minor, and they're even in Africa. You've got Sudan, which is also mentioned in that prophecy. Well, these nations are working together now. Uh, Iran and Russia have a very close working relationship with each other. Iran, Russia, and Turkey have all been very involved in Syria, which is right on the northern border of Israel. And if Iran and Russia and Turkey are all part of this future invasion of Israel, and we see them all on the borders of Syria and building up weaponry there, that tells us something. So 
there's a sense in which we see things coming together in a way that they've never come together before. And prophecy teachers call that the great convergence. So when we see many things, many signs becoming evident, that called more attention to us. It's kind of like when a storm arrives and the storm clouds come and it gets darker and darker. Well, these birth pains that Jesus talked about, these signs of the end time, it's getting darker and darker. We're noticing them more and more. And innately, I think we're sensing something's about to happen. I had a theology professor when I was in seminary who explained birth pangs as, and I, I want to get your take on this. He said, when a woman goes into labor, call them Braxton Hicks sometimes, but they have these small contractions far apart, then they get more intense, closer together, and then there may be reprieves from time to time, but right before the birth begins, they're super intense and they're close together. Is that an overreach to say that's what Jesus had in mind when he talked about birth pangs and the alignments of these different things coming together? I don't think it's overreach to say that. Jesus had a specific reason for letting us know about the birth pangs. He had a specific reason for letting us know this is what you can expect to see happen as the time approaches. He wanted to give people a warning. I think this all goes back to what we read in Second Peter 3, 9, about God being so patient, he is not willing that people would perish. He wants people to come to him, and he wants people to know that he's coming. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus said, in the very same message that he talked about the birth pain, he said, keep watch, which was a command. He wants us to anticipate. He deliberately gave this information to us so that we would know about it. It's interesting that when the disciples asked about the signs of the end time, Jesus didn't rebuke them, which is the complete opposite of what we often hear in churches today. Pastors will sometimes rebuke their congregation and say, we shouldn't be worried about the end times. We shouldn't be talking about them. They're too controversial. People have different opinions about it. So let's just stay away from that. But no, Christ himself said, here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm letting you know this. So no, it's not an overreach to say that. When and we have a former astronaut who, from I've never met him, but from what I gather, he's a fine believer. But he's been working on placing this, you know, key cornerstone on the Temple Mount. You mentioned, I think you're referring to the uh, Temple Institute in Jerusalem, which I've been to many times, and they are rebuilding all of the stuff. I, I remember uh, they have one. I don't know if you've been there, Steve, but they have a plexiglass display of a facsimile of some of the tools. And I remember asking the docent, how do you know about all the detail on this? I mean, it's got like designs, like jewelry. I said, I read Hebrew. That's not in the Hebrew text. It just talks about the materials that were used in Horam or Hiram who made them. And she says to me, oh, the rabbis know. And I go, how do you substantiate that? Well, then I became somewhat of an irritation. So I was... <laughs> I was sort of shut down, but I'm intrigued by this, and even the Genome Project. I've read articles that the uh, some of the rabbinics have huge interest in the Genome Project because we can go back and find the DNA structure of the red heifer. And, you know, you read about these things, and they're all fascinating in their own right, whether it's an astronaut trying to lay the, the stone for the temple rebuilding, whether it's the Genome Project, whether it's the... Jerusalem Temple Institute putting together all these instruments. But I also kind of wonder if it's like the ziggurat and God kind of sits back and laughs 
He says, yeah, you can do all that, but it's up to my timeline. Anyway, that's a lot of thrown at you, but I'm just curious on your take on some of these efforts. Backing up to what you said about how do the rabbis know this, I talk a little bit about that in Foreshadow. And basically, the Temple Institute is made up of researchers, artists, rabbis. They have access to archaeologists through the Israeli Antiquities Authority. The Temple Institute works with people who have access to research information, archaeological research that was done in the 1800s and 1900s in Israel. There was a very uh, intense period of time when archaeologists would go into the area and they would do their findings and things like that, and they would report them. And there are apparently some ancient Jewish writings that document some of the information that brought all together led the rabbis to conclude, okay, this is how we build this, this is how we build that, this is what we do here, this is what we do there. And it's possible that maybe their final assessments aren't perfect, that's very possible, but my understanding is that some of the implements that they created, for example, the menorah, if you've been in Jerusalem, in the old city, in the Jewish section, there's a huge six-foot-high menorah there. That menorah alone has 10 years of research behind it. So there's been a very deliberate thoughtful, careful effort to reconstruct all of this. As far as how all this fits together, that's hard to say. We on this side of the veil don't see things as clearly as God does on his side of the veil, but it's interesting to note in Scripture how God will profess that he controls and directs people. For example, in Proverbs 21.1, we read that it is God himself who guides the hearts of kings. And we see in Scripture now that at the time of the Exodus, though Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart of his own initiative, there were also times when God stepped in and hardened Pharaoh's heart. So God does intervene in human history. He does lead people to do certain things, and he orchestrates them in ways that uh, make his plan come about. Now, we might accuse God of, oh, God just uses people as puppets. No, there's a very healthy tension. Scripture very clearly talks about the fact that we have free will, the fact that we have the freedom to rebel against God. There's a sense in which we're able to reject what God desires for us, but there's also a sense in which God is able to overrule and orchestrate uh, what he desires to do. And I think uh, one of the grandest examples of all of that in Scripture is how as soon as God promised in Genesis 3.15, he promised Adam and Eve, They were so destitute. This was the worst day in human history. Darkness prevailed. Man fell into sin. And right there, right at that moment of all their despondency, God said, I am going to deliver you. I am going to send you a Savior. This Savior will crush Satan's head someday on the cross. Now, he didn't specify the cross. He only said that someone is coming who will crush Satan. And as time went on, gradually, more and more prophecies revealed what would happen. Well, From the moment that God made that prophecy, we have to realize that Satan's goal has always been, I'm going to keep that prophecy from ever being fulfilled. I do not want Christ to go to the cross, because if Christ gets to the cross, I'm defeated. And so we have Pharaoh commanding all the male babies of the Jewish people to be killed, to try to wipe out the Jewish population. We have Esther, where 
there was a very real danger that all the Jewish people would be killed from an edict from Hanan. And the king said all the Jewish people would be killed. And Esther pleaded on behalf of her people, and dangerously so. And the Jewish people were saved. We've got Bethlehem, when King Herod commanded that all the male babies two years and under be killed. Satan wanted to keep Christ from going to the cross. Well, now that victory has been secured by Christ on the cross, now Satan's desire is to destroy Israel. He did not want Israel to ever come back into the land, because if Israel came back into the land, that means the prophecies of the second coming could be fulfilled. And if the prophecies of the second coming could be fulfilled, then that means Christ is going to return. And Satan has been doing everything he can to prevent prophecy from being fulfilled. He wanted to prevent Christ from going to the cross. He wants to prevent Israel from becoming a nation again, because once Israel becomes a nation again, we have a stage on which the end times can take place. And once that stage is in place, we know that Christ is going to return at the end of it all and defeat all of his enemies. So even with all of Satan's efforts, God has overruled all of that. He's in control. And we on this side of the veil don't understand the tension between our freedom and his sovereignty, but ultimately we know his sovereignty prevails. Good point. And I think it's hard for us to understand that God uses men. You mentioned, you know, Esther and so forth. I, I always love the story of Nebuchadnezzar because, you know, I mean, here, here's a, a Babylonian king who hates Israel, who essentially, I don't know that he became a convert, but he sure used some language <laughs> that indicated he understood the Hebrew God was pretty important. Let me go back to something that you and I are on the same page, but a lot of our friends uh, would hold to what's called replacement theology. Uh, a lot of my Reformed brothers, I, I teased them. I said, when are you going to teach Ezekiel, the second part of Daniel, and the second part of the book of Revelation past chapter 7? And they just kind of blow it off. I was, you'll appreciate this. Uh, we lived in the Virginia, D.C. area for many years, and I was invited to a group. Uh, there were four or five tables of 10. Michael Cromartie, who's with the Lord now, had organized this particular event. All of them were Reformed or Anglican Reformed brothers. And rather than sitting at the table and asking, you know, what's the latest book you've read or movie you've seen, I just tossed the question out. None of them had been to Israel, by the way. And I just tossed the question out. I said, in your scheme of prophecy and eschatology, what role does Israel play? Is it key? Is it somehow important? Or is maybe it just a piece of dirt? And Steve, to a man, they went around the table I sat at, and basically they said, yeah, it really doesn't matter anymore. And finally, Mike Cromartie looked at me and goes, well, given your parameters, I'd say it's more than a piece of dirt, but not much. Now, they didn't ask me my opinion, <laughs> but be that as it may, I was shocked. I'm like, where does your biblical hermeneutic jettison I go back to Judges chapter 1 all the time, 1 and 2. Much of the land had not yet been taken. I go back to the Abrahamic covenant over and over again. Genesis 12, 15, 17, 19. The land is, is non-negotiable in this unilateral covenant. Yet somehow, and you referenced Romans 9, 10, 11 earlier, somehow we can dismiss all that and we can replace the Israel with the church. How do you respond to that when I'm sure you're asked? That's not an easy question to answer. My initial yeah. heart response, okay, setting apart from Scripture, setting apart the fact that 
we disagree on this aspect of uh, where Israel stands in God's plan, just in my heart, it just hurts a little bit in the sense that here God made promises and he very clearly used the words forever and everlasting when he made these promises. He said that these promises would be passed on down to your descendants. And the Apostle Paul, even after Israel has rejected Christ, even after this rejection has taken place, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that the calling of God is irrevocable. That language speaks to me of, if we set aside Israel, then we're saying about God using the words forever, God using the word everlasting, and Paul saying his calling is irrevocable, that has to be denied. Somehow, God was not able to see into the future and realize, oh, okay, I can't keep this forever. This isn't going to be everlasting. Israel's going to go off on their own. Um, it almost, to me, it almost seems to undermine God's sovereignty when you take that view. I think for me, the one point at which I have the greatest difficulty, and this is just me speaking, you can talk to different people, you can talk to Mark Hitchcock, you can talk to Ron Rhodes, you can talk to Jeff Kenley, you can talk to Todd Hampson, all people who share the views that we do, all very good people. You can talk to them, they may have different answers, but to me, I think what it comes down to is that night when God made his covenant with Abraham. And they were to cut the animals in halves, lay out the sides, and Abraham went to sleep, and God was the one who walked between the animals. The normal tradition was for both parties of a covenant to walk between the animals, making them both obligated to keep the covenant. But when God himself walked through those animals, right. and Abraham was asleep, that made it very clear that God was bearing full responsibility for making this covenant happen. God was making this an unconditional promise. Abraham being asleep, in essence, was saying, you don't have to do anything. This is all on me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I refer to the Abrahamic covenant probably once or twice a month in my sermons because I keep going back to this was a unilateral, irrevocable covenant that God made. And Abraham, in a way, we talked about free will and so forth a moment ago, but in a way, God was saying, I'm going to use you or the you want to be used or not. You will be a blessing. You will do these things. And and I often belabor the point that, you know, when Lot and uh, Abram have this confab, all the multiplication of herds and flocks and people, and they have to separate, that and when Terah, his father, dies, I observed when I talked about it, I said, guys, oh, Abraham didn't obey God. Abraham took his family with him. But God was kind and merciful, and he used the multiplication to separate him from Lot. He used Terah's death to separate him from the attachment to his father. He calls him his friend, by the way. But interestingly, then as we look at Genesis 12, 15, 17, 19, we see kind of an unfolding and further explanation, which to me, I've always, and again, you're the expert, not me, but I always appeal to, that's a hint about prophetic literature. Because man is sinful and stubborn and does things his own ways, God's plan's not going to change. But what he reveals to man, what he encourages toward man, is I'm going to fulfill this. Yes. And I, I just appreciate you reinforcing my convictions. <laughs> well, you know, you made a very interesting point, Michael. God chose Abraham. 
When God did that, he already knew what was going to happen in advance. So there were going to be no surprises yes. for God. He knew Israel would disobey, but he also knew he could work through that disobedience. And to me, the strongest indicator that God knew all along what was going to happen was the very fact that God prophesied that Israel would come back in the land and that they did come back in the land says something. Agreed. Let, let me ask you, because we, we should talk about your book. I just talk about prophecy with you forever because I, I love to learn and it's an area. I think a lot of pastors, Steve, feel ill-equipped to teach on prophecy, uh, eschatology in general. We're, we're trained differently and I don't think it's an area. I remember uh, I was at the same church in D.C. I mentioned and uh, in Virginia and Dr. Walbert came and we had a little alumni gathering, and we hosted it at our church. And he, he was very delightful, but he was in his 90s. He said, why don't you pastors preach Revelation? <laughs> and I said, I said, Dr. Walford, we're scared. We don't know what to do. We're going to be wrong. He just laughed, and he kind of gently uh, encouraged us to say, gentlemen, you need to teach your people about the future. But uh, anyway, to defend my brothers in the pulpit, let's pick a couple. Of, well, one thing, and then I want to talk. You, you pick a couple of mega clues you want to talk about. You have 12 mega clues in your book. G give us one or two as a tease so that people say, oh, okay, this is why I need to buy Steve's book on foreshadows. What, what are one or two of the mega clues that Christ's return is nearer than ever? You know, it's hard to pick. I would say, uh, <laughs> I'll start with globalism. We do know that there's coming a day when the whole world will be ruled by one man, the Antichrist. We look at the situation in our world today, we've got 200 plus countries, we've got all these different governments, and they're not all in agreement. I mean, we've got wars going on right now. There's about 20 wars going on now in our world. It's not just Russia against Ukraine, but there are other wars that are going on too. And so there are all these people in disagreement. That's so what we say, well, how are we going to get from where we are now to a one-world government? What's very compelling is that in recent decades, we've noticed things happening where people are no longer thinking in terms of, I belong in this country or I belong in that country. People are starting to think in terms of, we're all one global community. And this is what Klaus Schwab talks about. Klaus Schwab is the founder of the World Economic Forum. He talks about this in his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. The World Economic Forum seized on COVID-19 as an opportunity to say, look, look at the way the world governments have responded to COVID-19. It was very splintered through a lot of disagreements. Different countries decided to respond in different ways. And the World Economic Forum, they said, this isn't right. People's lives are in danger. There's a lot going on here that we don't know about, and we need to come up with some kind of solution quickly. And the former prime minister of England, Gordon Brown, even went so far as to say, we need to appoint an executive. We need to appoint a committee that can make decisions for everyone and figure out how in the world to get past this real, real quickly. Wow. I don't say that to say that, you know, people talk about the new world order. They talk about picking someone and all that. I don't say that to say that we're going to make a quantum leap from here to there all of a sudden. Uh, that's not the view I take in the book. The view I take in the book is that what's happening is, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, different leaders, the crises that happen that make us say, hey, we need to work together. All of this is creating an environment in which we think, okay, we need to start thinking globally as people. 
global problems require a global solution. And that does make logical sense. We think, okay, well, this is a global problem. Let's come up with a global solution for it. Well, left implied is, okay, if we're going to come up with a global solution, there has to be a global committee of some kind that has the power to enforce those solutions. And Klaus Schwab, in his book on the Great Reset, he said, the way that governments are doing things and not working out, we need to tear up the script. We need to reimagine our world. We need to look at global ways of governance. And that was as far as he went, global models of governance. And what's interesting is if you go into the World Economic website, you'll see all these plans, all these ideas they have that are based on the globe working on them together, the globe doing things together. The United Nations does the same thing. The United Nations has an agenda for 2030 where they're saying all nations need to be involved in making these things happen. So there's a globalist mentality that is being created, even though we're fractioned into 200 different countries, and even though we have a lot of different governments, what's happening is that the globalist mentality is being created, and as crises happen, this is what's interesting about COVID-19. All of a sudden, we noticed that governments of the world were leaning heavily on two, three, or four key people, key voices, key health organizations, saying this is how we need to respond to COVID-19. This is how we need to deal with it. We saw a transfer of power from governments to a few individuals. And I believe what we're going to see happen in the future is more and more, as crises happen, governments are going to default to a few key voices and say, how do we solve this? And this transfer of power to fewer voices, the long run, what that means is we lose our freedom. These few voices dictate what everybody's going to do. So just the whole mentality of globalism, I believe that's making a world more ripe for eventually a one-world government. So that would be one that I could give. I think it's fascinating. You mentioned COVID-19. I've had this discussion with some of my uh, friends. I, I have I assemble people that are a whole lot smarter than me to help me in life. <laughs> and we talked about COVID early on and how this was a litmus for exactly what you said. Because even in our own country, forget Congress, the three branches of government, we're going to have a health official say, this is what you need to do. And in a sweet, and because of fear, uh, because of the unknowns, that all of a sudden, so if we had some globalized war or another, I mean, certainly a biochemical conflict could be part of our demise, right? I mean, that could be part of God's strategy to let loose some engineered bug. Who knows? But all that to say, you're exactly right. Well, I, I love the observation. It's fascinating because I think most people have missed this, that one virus, and we can talk about the death tolls and those numbers, and I don't mean to be uh, discompassionate or unkind to people that lost loved ones, but COVID didn't kill a lot of these folks. A lot of these folks had comorbidities. A lot of the treatments were, were withheld, et cetera. All that to say, it was illustrative of if we have a, a big problem, you're exactly right. It won't come down to the three branches of government making measured decisions and protecting our own citizens. It'll be a handful of people with their hand on the switch, so to speak, and we'll have to comply. So you're right. The freedom is a, a terrifying thing. What about, and uh, you mentioned it in, in some of your materials, so I'm curious, and maybe it's globalization, but when we think of these big tech companies like Apple and Amazon and Facebook, and, and now we have a new savior for Twitter, we have Elon Musk you know, coming in to save Twitter. 
how how is this important to keep watch on, Steve, when you think about prophecy and these alignments of these powerful companies? I'm going to back up a little bit. You used the key word, which is so important here. You used the word fear. COVID struck fear in the people of the world. And it's interesting. When people are fearful, one of their first responses is to go to their government leaders and say, we need help. Protect us. Give us safety. Fear prompts us to, it's a trigger that causes us to want safety, that causes us to seek protection. And there are certain people who know this. And this is why crises can be such world-shaping events. Crises that cause fear are an opportunity for powerful people to say, I'll give you your safety, I'll give you your security, but you're going to have to give up some of your freedoms in order for that to happen. That is, in essence, what happens whenever a crisis hits. I see COVID-19 only as a gateway. Yeah, it's very terrifying, but I think it's only one more step forward. It's only one stepping stone. I think that there are going to be many more stepping stones that bring greater fear. One of those stepping stones, interestingly enough, is going to be the rapture. The people who are left, there's going to be a great amount of fear in the world, and people are going to capitalize on that. But going to what you say about the technology companies like Apple or uh, Facebook and things like that, what's interesting about those companies is that they transcend government borders. They transcend borders that we normally recognize in our lives. Uh, It used to be that when we lived our lives, within the confines of what happened locally, what happened regionally, what happened within our country, or what happened within our state. But we all now use internet technology that gives us global reach. We all use products that give us global reach. We all use the products of companies that have global reach. All of this transcends government. All of this, these companies are what are called stateless. They're not bound to a state. And they're so powerful that the policies they create actually influence the way governments make their policies too. So because we're interconnected by stateless companies, we start viewing ourselves as stateless people. And that too contributes to the whole idea that we're one global community. Steve Miller, author of the new book, Four Shadows, 12 Mega Clues That Jesus' Return is Nearer than ever. In the show notes, you can find information about how to purchase the book. I highly encourage you. you know, if you're a small group leader, you have a maybe you teach a, a Sunday school class in your local church, or maybe grab a couple of friends and buy a few copies of Steve's book, read a chapter, get together for a, a meal, a, a coffee, and talk about it, argue about it, look at the scripture, uh, think about it. I, I appreciate you, you diving into this subject, Steve. I think things. We talked about COVID being one of them. It's an interesting time for Christians to think prophetically, not in a fear way, but maybe, maybe indeed, uh, some of these things are aligning. And um, yeah, maybe we'll see it in our lifetime. But I go back to my joke about imminent return. <laughs> I believe in it, just not in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's interesting. You're right. Uh, it's easy to overtly focused on the fear element of prophecy. But God did not give us prophecy so that we'd be fearful. He gave us prophecy so that we'd be hopeful. He wants us to be ready. We have a great future ahead of us. Scripture talks about wonderful things about what lies ahead. Once the end times are over from then on, we're talking about an eternity of bliss, of righteousness, of justice, of love, of joy, of face-to-face fellowship with God. So prophecy really is meant to give us hope. 
by knowing what's going to happen in the future, it should affect our behavior today, our hearts, our mind. We have an eternal perspective that helps us keeping our eyes on the finish line and not getting dragged down by the circumstances around us. As some people say, things are not falling down, they're looking up. Prophecy helps us to keep our eyes on God, and it really is meant to give us hope. We should have a, it should give us joy to read prophecy and to explore all of what it offers us. Great perspective. I love Paul's, uh, his chiasm. He uses uh, a momentary light affliction over against the eternal weight of glory. That what we have now seems insufferable, intractable. You mentioned, you know, we're falling apart as we get older, disease, health, etc. It's momentary. It's light compared to the eternal weight of God's glory. Again, Steve, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Information in the show notes. Pick up his book today and uh, give it as a gift to some of your friends that don't believe in end times. How about that? <laughs> God bless you, Steve. Thanks again. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much again for all you're doing to help further the kingdom the way you do. Likewise, brother. Press on. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.